0: The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, a Love Story. From award winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says Director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. Today, I spoke with Laura McGann about her film, The Deepest Breath.
1: The the Deepest Breath is the story of a champion freediver and an expert safety diver whose lives seem fated to converge at the height of their careers. It's a look at the thrilling rewards and the inescapable risks of an incredible sport as they chase their dreams through the depths of the ocean.
0: As you'll hear in our interview, it's about all that. It's also a meditation on ambition and love and even grief. The film premiered at Sundance. It is out in select theaters on July 14th and will be streaming on Netflix starting on July 19th. One note, a lot happens even in the early moments of this film. So please do watch the film before you listen to the interview. There are spoilers. If you like this conversation, Please do follow us at Top Docs Pod on Twitter or Instagram. And now, my conversation with Laura began about the deepest
1: breath. Laura, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's a real pleasure to talk to you.
0: Your film tracks the lives and unusual careers of freediving world champion Alessia Zucchini and safety diver and freediving coach Stephen Keenan. What drew you to this story?
1: Well, initially I read about Stephen and Alessia in the Irish Times and I didn't know even what freediving was. So I Googled it, what is freediving? And I was met with these images, underwater images, of human beings holding their breath underwater, behaving more like seals or dolphins or just little fish than human beings. I'd never seen anything like before. Also, I didn't know it at the time. Now I know it was also shot by freedivers. So the cinematographers had this ease of movement in the water where they weren't like laden down by tanks. And, you know, I've seen all the gorgeous underwater, Blue Planet, all that, and I love it. But this was something completely different, something I'd never seen before. And it's not often you see something, you know, that's just entirely new. It was kind of like... Learning that there was a group of people who lived in a certain place in the world that knew fly. It went from there. I got to know more about Cedar and Alessia and I just kind of fell in love with the two of them and watched through archive and through talking to people. Learned about their stories, where they came from and this beautiful wild streak that they both had. It was an amazing journey for me as a filmmaker to go along on with them.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, which is it's not just that the divers are swimming on a single breath and without equipment, but safety divers are as well. And most of the photographers and the videographers are doing so as well.
1: Exactly. So with freediving at a competition, say you have the athlete who's trying to reach a certain depth, and then you have a number of safety divers, a deep and a shallow, and they're on a breath hold as well. So they're holding their breath. Because if you're on scuba, you can't go up so quickly with the diver if they need to be brought to the surface. So you have to kind of decompress. And the same with the photographers. You know, you can't be hopping up and down with scuba either. So really, everybody who's in the water is usually on breath hold as well. It's a real team effort, and they've kind of learned to look after more than just the athlete now. You know, they realize that it's important that you've got to watch out for every human, whether it's the camera person or the safety diver or, you know, an onlooker or whatever.
0: Yeah, or tourists exploring the coral nearby. I want to talk more about the safety aspects because I think it's so important to the film. Before we get there, and I want everyone who's listening, if you've not seen the film, please do go watch the film before you listen because inevitably here, we're going to have some spoilers. You open with a quick scene of Alessia. She speeds down the road in the Bahamas, and we then watch as she attempts a world record. And this is an incredibly tense scene. And it really plunges us. And again, that's one of these terms. It's almost literal, I think. It plunges us into the experience. You know, I found myself here and elsewhere kind of split. In one hand, I was watching and I was trance and admiring Alessia swimming. At the same time, I was kind of, you know, I was experiencing what it was like. It was almost like I was experiencing it myself.
1: The scene you're talking about is our opening scene. It's shot on an underwater drone. So the drone follows the diver all the way down to whatever, 100 meters and back up again. What I wanted to do at the start of the film was because, I, you know, a lot of people won't know what freediving is. Before I tell you anything, you've got to understand what it is. And, yeah, know, we could explain it. We could say it's a sport where you hold your breath and you do this. and But like it's impossible to grasp it unless you're actually experiencing it with them, unless you feel the time passing you feel the the length of the space that she's traveled through and you also see how the colors change and the color just drains out of the shot and it goes completely dark so when i watched this footage for the first time any free diving footage in fact i wanted to get involved i was like let me see now if i can if i can hold my breath and embarrassingly like you know you're taking seven or eight deep breaths in the space of one of their dives so it is that it's very much like I think when you're holding your breath, you're in it. And then when you're breathing, you're back out of it again. And then you hold your breath and you get into it again. And then you breathe and you're out of it again. So it's both like an experiment for yourself, the viewer, and also an opportunity to see someone in an environment that you've never seen them in before. Doing something we've never seen somebody do before either because it hasn't been done before. Yeah,
0: I should note here that in my youth, I was a competitive swimmer, uh, not necessarily a winning one, but a competitive one. And we did a fair amount of breath holding. If you were a medley swimmer, if you were, for example, you sw- had to swim the butterfly. We did a lot of like swimming laps under the water using butterfly kick only. Uh, so I can really, uh, those scenes where she does 150 meters or whatever, when she's you know, a teenager is just incredible. The other thing about this scene, I think, is it's so intense, but slow. The sound really, I think, becomes extremely important. You know, to me, I think I heard a little bit of slowing a heartbeat. Obviously, this can't be the actual sound, so it's got to be constructed in some way. Could you talk about what you were trying to accomplish with the sound in this scene?
1: So one of the things that happens as you go deeper is that your heart rate slows down, and that is to help you conserve oxygen and to hold your breath for longer. And often, as the divers have explained to me, if you use your fingers to block your ears, you hear your heartbeat. You can hear the sounds of your body. And what I wanted to try and create was what the diver is hearing as they go down and they descend. Their ears are put under pressure because you've got all of the water that's above your head putting pressure on your ears. We wanted to kind of create a soundscape where it sounds different. You go on a journey you know, and you hear what it's like to have like 10 meters above your head. And then like, as you descend, that pressure becomes more intense and it's getting quieter, but it's also getting like more pressurized. So we just sit in a room and kind of go, well, what does that sound like? But also what does the diver feel like? You know, what is the diver experiencing emotionally and how can we reflect that as well? It was a really interesting process and it, it was a great challenge. And Number of people in Molinare did an incredible job of putting together a soundscape for the ocean.
0: At the end of the scene, we see Alessia surfacing, and honestly, for those of you who don't know about free diving, we don't quite know what we're seeing. I think I didn't. I wasn't sure that what I was seeing wasn't fatal. Can you talk a bit about blackouts, what they are, how common they are in free diving?
1: A blackout is something that happens when your body realizes that it doesn't have enough oxygen. Your brain blacks out in order to kind of protect itself. I'm going to quote Stephen from the film, 99% of blackouts happen in the last 10 meters of a dive. And it's because your lungs get smaller in size as you go down and then they get bigger in size again as you come back up. And when they get bigger, suddenly your brain realizes, shit, I didn't have as much oxygen as I thought I did. It's like fainting and it happens a lot in the sport and it's taken a while for the people in the sport to say, "Okay, look, it does happen. It's part of the sport and there's kind of no getting around it. And usually, you know, people could black out for a couple of seconds and freediving safety divers, they do a thing called blow, tap, talk. So they blow on the person's face, they tap their face and they talk to them. It's a really, really simple technique, which brings people back quite quickly I remember seeing them for the first time in videos, but I actually remember seeing it in real life at Vertical Blue. And that was definitely weird for me to see a person, you know, black out like that. I actually have only seen one in real life. So that was the only one. But from what freedivers have told me, you see it happening and then you see people coming back and they're all right. I see that enough times where, you know, it doesn't have that impact that it had on me the first time I, I saw it. But it is something that people seem to be quite comfortable with and accepting as being part of the sport. But it's definitely, it's definitely hard to watch when you don't know what you're looking at.
0: Yeah, and it really emphasizes the danger of what we're seeing, right? I mean, there is a dangerous part of this, which we'll talk more about. So after the opening, two of your key characters, I really argue kind of the emotional spine of the film, are the father of Alessia and Steven, Enzo Zucchini and Peter Keenan. And this contrast between youthful ambition and maybe in some cases even recklessness and this older retrospective wisdom is stark. I think the way you shoot Peter in the kind of near shadow really emphasizes this. Can you talk about working with these two fathers in the wake of all the events of the film?
1: So I suppose it's interesting the way, and this wasn't on purpose, but we shot Peter's interview first. At the time, he lived across the road from me, which is just a complete coincidence. I'd been researching the film for about six months and talking to different people. And then I was meeting with Peter and he crossed the road, which was just bizarre. We shot with Peter in Italy in 2019. And then Enzo was the last interview that we did, which was in the 2021 So those two years between the two interviews, it wasn't on purpose. It was just with COVID and everything. We were going to go to Rome and talk to Enzo, but also Enzo doesn't have any English. So I I couldn't actually sit down with Enzo before we sat down for the interview. And all the other interviewees we spoke to, that was, you know, I had numerous long, 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 long calls with them all before we did any interview. So it was really a shot in the dark what we were going to talk, you know, how much Enzo kind of wanted to talk about how he really felt about his beloved daughter going to these depths and having to watch her disappear into the darkness and wait until she came back up. I actually became a parent. Our daughter was born in February 2021, so in between those two dads interviews, I became a parent myself, and I suppose became acutely aware of that role and gave it a lot of thought. One of the things with freediving is that Being the person at home must be very difficult. For a free diver, it's a beautiful experience. You get to experience lovely calm, this beautiful free fall, the elation when you come back up. But the person on the surface who's just watching doesn't get any of that and potentially is quite nervous. And I've seen Alexei, who is the deepest man in the world, his partner. I watched her watch him diving and it's tough to watch. It's tough to watch. And I could see that She was just having to grin and bear it until he came back up again. And I just thought, oh, my God, how? It's almost like even more interesting. How do the parent, how does the loved one do it? I knew as well that the kind of felt like the parent is going to be the voice of the audience in a way, you know, and it's going to have those anxieties and kind of reflect them. I also had no idea. That Enzo felt the way he felt about Stephen. At the end of the interview, Enzo said that he would give his life for Stephen. Enzo's position there is just one of pure love and heartbreak, you know, for Stephen, for Alessia, and also for Stephen's family. And actually, it was a funny position to be in because Enzo and Peter had never actually been in touch. So when I sat down with Enzo, I had obviously had many, many, many chats with Peter. Peter and Enzo had never been in touch after the accident. There was a lot that hadn't been said yet between the two families. And, and I suppose I asked Enzo, you know, what would you like to say to Peter if you were to speak to him? He said, I would give my life for Stephen. And I think that meant an awful lot. For Peter to hear that that's how Enzo felt. And because there was the language barrier, I think that's kind of part of the reason why they'd never really had a conversation. And I believe that started a conversation between the two families, which I think both are glad they've kind of had now.
0: After the introduction, the first half of the film really is the stories of the two characters, main characters separate but in kind of different trajectories, but headed towards each other. And they're kind of entangled almost mystically, but they're different, right? So Alessia really seems to know what she wants from a very early age. We see her in the pool and the sea. Stephen's a bit looser to start. He seems to seek adventure all over the globe, but he's also torn. He talks about living a more conventional life.
1: Looking from the outside in at Stephen's life and listening to his interviews and his own, looking at his own DV tape, stuff that he shot, There seemed to be that conflict, and Peter speaks to it very well as well. There seemed to be that conflict within Stephen whereby he didn't want to kind of be tied down to Dublin, but he was very grounded in his family, and he suffered terrible kind of loss as quite a young kid. Peter says this in the documentary, you know, how the family split up and and then... You know, not long after that, then his mum passed away. And and I think that maybe he was lacking the kind of the new family, you know, you've your family of origin, which he was really grounded. But even though he did want to go off and explore the world and not necessarily just stay in Dublin, I'm not even talking about free diving. I'm just talking about like experiencing going through the Congo on your own, discovering The meeting people, going up into volcanoes, going down into the middle of the sea. It seemed like he was trying to have both things, which is hard to do. And sadly, at the end of the film, just before the end of the film, he finds what he's looking for. That's what it feels like. He has found someone to share his dream with, which does seem like what he may have always wanted. And then obviously it's just taken away very early and far too quickly. It's a story of, I suppose, finding your dream, but unfortunately not being able to enjoy it.
0: So he does set up this diving center in Dahab, Egypt, and really seems to be prospering. He focuses on the safety side of things. It's very interesting, the whole sport, because it's nature, requires this incredible crew, right? As you said, you have a deep diver and a shallow diver, safety diver. You seem to have a medical crew that's above water. Can you talk to us about the kind of safety structure that's built around these events?
1: Now, I wouldn't be the best person to describe the (laughs) thing, but just from my own very much outside perspective, like you said there, there's the shallow and the deep safety. There might be surface safeties as well. The number might vary depending on the competition, but also you'll have at Vertical Blue, anyway, the year I was there, there was a medic on the platform, maybe two. And then there was also dry medics who were at the shore. And there would be a team of medics, I think, in both scenarios. That is off the top of my head. There's a good team at any kind of reputable competition. There's a really decent team. And they really try to mitigate all the risk and make sure that if something bad happens, that they have the people there, but also the equipment there to help them.
0: Stephen's father notes that despite Stephen's water lust and his traveling spirit, you know, he traveled with care and seriousness, he says. And I thought it was pretty amazing to see how Stephen's really structured, not just the during this competition in the water sorts of aspect of safety, but even outside, he has a morning meeting with his team. He has this incredible board with every diver and all sorts of things listed for each diver. He's incredibly meticulous about his safety approach.
1: Yeah, very much so. And the photographer would film each dive and if a person came up and would black out or not black out, Stephen seemed to really get each diver. A diver might start a competition. I think you've six dives in vertical blue. And if your aim is to get to 100, you might start at 91 on the first day. You might go to 93. He'd kind of know where they were in their plan. He'd know what their plan was. And he would be able to see, okay, right, I think this person's going to push themselves to do 100 here, let's say, but I don't think they should, or I don't think they're ready. So let's be careful. Let's be ready for this person to have a blackout or to struggle. And he'd really kind of have his finger on the pulse of all of the divers there. One of our contributors, who's a respiratory specialist, who is one of the medics there, she really speaks to Stephen, just kind of having that sixth sense about the uh, diver and how they were going to push themselves and what was going to happen.
0: It's interesting too, in that this diving brings together Stephen and Alessia and Stephen sees some of the, what he says is mistakes that Alessia is making and he wants to help her. And it's very interesting to see this sort of issue. Compare it to uh, Hundred Foot Wave, another documentary where we see safety drivers and surfers, very similar sort of relationship. There it's long-term, they've built up relationships over years here, we really see this incredibly intense thing where we actually see Stephen and Alessia in the water face to face is incredibly intimate the, the the recording is incredible. We actually see kind of their relationship developing on screen. That was my experience. When you saw that tape, what did you feel?
1: Oh, my God. You just like I actually just got goosebumps there as I imagined what I felt when I saw it for the first time. It was just so beautiful to see two people connect without using words. And they were just looking at each other. He was so encouraging. And the opposite to what I've just described is like he could tell if somebody was going to have a hard time, he could tell that she had it in her and everybody else was kind of, you know, maybe doubting her saying, God, you should pull back. He could see that she could do it. And that was what was beautiful about his kind of ability to connect with people, seeing that footage of them just looking at each other and knowing I've got you, I've got you. And seeing that kind of happen for the first time on the screen was really, really special. There was just no denying that there was an incredible connection there. And it was kind of, for me as a filmmaker, there's a few other moments in the footage that I just found incredibly sad. And I remember like crying when I watched one particular piece of footage because knowing what we know happened there was just a purity to kind of the two of them meeting that was just really beautiful. And it was incredibly sad to watch it, knowing what was coming down the line.
0: I did want to ask about this because I was really interested in this character. And I think even more so than many other sports, maybe because of the risk, the specter of those who went before kind of way heavily. Can you tell us who Natalia Malchinova was and what she means to Alessia, maybe to all divers?
1: Natalia Malchinova was the greatest free diver of all time she held every single record that there is in free diving. That's in the pool and the sea and static, everything. She held it. And people would occasionally beat her. And like, you know, a week later, she would just go out and beat them by a meter again. She wasn't trying to push herself. She just maintained the position of the best at everything. And she, she only started diving when she was in her 40s, I think. She went through a divorce and she had been a, a competitive swimmer and I think like maybe a swim teacher. And she got into freediving after this. Her son is Alexei Molchinov, and he is currently the deepest man in the world. He last week went to 133 meters. Wow. To Alessia growing up, she had this Natalia as an incredible role model and she just wants to be just like her. And she kind of follows in her path for years but the link happens when Stephen actually saves Natalia's son in the deepest rescue ever Stephen was waiting for Alexei at 30 meters and there was no sign of him usually the diver safety diver will go down to 30 meters and they'll get to 30 meters as the diver is getting to 30 meters there's no waiting around the two of them just go up together but Stephen was there and he was waiting like for almost a minute and it almost wasn't normal at all. And he was watching down below him and Alexei comes up. He sees him at 40 meters and he's circling the rope. Stephen knows there's something not right. Stephen is also like running out of air himself very much. He's been underwater for too long and he goes down and brings Alexei back up. And it was a real moment where Stephen really risked his life. And not an awful lot of people would have been able to physically do that either. Stephen was a lot shorter than Alexei, so it was really deemed a massive kind of moment to have saved the world champion in such a fashion. And Natalia was there as well. It was just incredible kind of putting the story together and seeing how Alessia and Stephen were, before they were meeting, people that they were really integral in their lives, those people started to weave themselves around each other and almost bring Stephen and Alessia in a way as well. So that's who Natalia Molchinova is. And unfortunately, sadly, in Spain in 2015, Natalia was on a dive with friends of hers in Ibiza and she simply disappeared. And sadly, she was never found. It was a massive blow to the freediving community because she was the queen. She was the person that everybody looked up to, not just Alessia. You know, everybody just watched her in awe. And I think maybe people felt like, you know, she was invincible. And her accident really reminded people of how fragile life is and how nobody is immune to the ocean, what it can do.
0: In the second half of your film, we return to the Bahamas with Alessia. We see her driving the car. We see her arriving. And of course, we don't quite know what's happening yet. We do see her and a Japanese competitor. They kind of are outmatching each other repeatedly. At one point, Alessia is told she can't compete for a day or two. She swims away in frustration above water, but still maybe a little recklessly. And one of your participants, William Truebridge, notes that this didn't go over well with everyone. Can you talk a bit about how you weren't looking to make Alessia a saint, that you were willing to expose some of the challenges that she's experiencing at this point.
1: I think it's just like, it's the right thing to do. As a filmmaker, I respect Alessia and Stephen too much to just pretend that they're saints, and that's not life. I felt like Alessia grows up in this film. She learns a lot about herself as a human being, as a diver, as a storyteller, You need to show like someone learning. And if you don't show them making mistakes, well then you haven't really seen what's really happened. In order to really understand how much she grew, you needed to see what she was still had to learn. It was, you know, I was nervous about it, but Alessia is a really open person and she is a very honest person and she'll put her hands up and say, oh yeah, you know, I, I I lost my cool there. But anyway, let's keep going.
0: Even here in the sea, seemingly away from the world, we can feel the impact of social media. We hear that Alessia is responding to hecklers and internet trolls. And we see a, a video that she filmed responding to Facebook rumors. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? That even here, that internet world is impinging on it in some way.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And that goes to show just the, the kind, she's such an open person. You know, she's doing this, incredible world record and she's also interacting with people that are following her and it's not in a self-promoting way it's more so those videos were to let people know that she was okay because I think people were saying oh she blacked out at 20 and she had to get on there and say You know, at more, I'd say mainly like for people that care about her. She's like, I didn't, you know, this didn't happen and I'm okay and don't worry and calm down. Everything's fine. It's a really brave thing to do and just to have to stand up and kind of defend yourself a little bit and just put a stop to any rumors that might be circulating. You know, we see the the dive
0: for 104 meters. And again, if we're paying attention, we notice the first dive at the beginning of the film was actually, I think, a timed dive and this is more a, a distance dive. But we're not quite sure what's going to happen, right? And you show Enzo actually watching it. And this is incredibly intense. And for anyone who's a parent, it's maybe even a little more intense. It's tough for him, even if he knows what the results are. Can you talk about bringing him into this experience this way?
1: I was floored in that moment because we did, myself and Enzo did the interview and I was outside the room and our interpreter, Claudia, sat across from Enzo. So I'd ask the question from outside the door. They'd both hear me. Claudia would translate to Enzo. Enzo would answer and then Claudia would translate his Italian back to me. So we spent the day with Enzo in his house and it was a long interview. You know, it was maybe about four hours. So we really got to step by step our way through Alessia's life and through Enzo's own life as well we actually sat down to have a cup of tea I think and just get some little shots of of Enzo wasn't even really entirely intentional and because we'd spoken about this 104 it was where she breaks the world record and we put it on we press play on the laptop and he watched it and like he's watched it once it just brought him right back And it was as if he was watching it for the first time and he was just in a knot, even though he knew she was going to come back up. But he just went right back into that space that he had been in and you could see the tension in his face. You could see the pain, you know, that he was feeling waiting for her to come up out of the darkness because, of course, the sonar stopped working so they didn't know where she was so it was just an extra tense moment that emotion is so on the surface for Enzo that it didn't take much for him just to be right back in that place
0: this um dive actually was successful and she does finish that competition they both are living afterwards we weren't necessarily sure going into it that that's what's going to be the result but then we go into the final tragic incident, which happens at Dahab, at what's called the Blue Hole. Can you talk about what the Blue Hole is?
1: Yeah, I suppose in the film, we discover the Blue Hole through Stephen. As he's traveling around Africa, he ends up in Egypt. He went there to update his paddy license to put more arrows so that, I don't know how that works. But, and he discovered this place through scuba diving initially. And it's in the Sinai Desert, just on the edge. You've got these massive mountains that are like this beautiful sandstone colour, real spiky, rocky mountains. And then it goes down, you've got this little stony patch and then you've got the sea. And about 10 metres out to sea is this massive drop-off so it's surrounded by coral, it's like a cylindrical sinkhole, which goes down to about 102, 103 metres. And down at 53 metres or thereabouts, there is what's called the arch. So if you, with your scuba, you're going down, even if you go down to, I think, 40 meters, you can see down below this arch, which people have described it being like a cathedral of light just opens up down under the water. And it is a tunnel that goes through the bedrock for 35 meters. And then you come out the other side. They had seen pictures, maps of how this all worked. And we went and we filmed there in May 21. And I was getting in there for the first time, just we started to shoot and had my little goggles and snorkel and fins on. And you can't walk on the coral because you don't touch coral. So it would have been about up to my hip, let's say. But I was on the surface, just like flapping my little fins and looking down at the shallow water and little fish and corals, beautiful. And I kind of forgot where I was. And then all of a sudden, the ground just dropped out like a cliff. Like, well, nothing gradual about it. it. The coral disappeared and it was this massive drop down to 100 meters, completely like, it was like this flash of blue, the brightest blue light that seemed to go on forever. And the visibility was incredible. You could see fish that were like 20 meters away. And that was a kind of important moment for me because a lot of the divers had described this blue and how it calls you and how you just want to be in it. And I was just so delighted that I got to kind of at least see from the surface what they were talking about. I think it was important. It definitely, I think it informed like visually how I put moments of it together.
0: Yeah, it's visually stunning. And your description there was great. Thank you for that. And in the scenes where Alicia is basically attempting to navigate the arch, what I was struck by in some ways was what wasn't there, too. You know, in our documentary landscape today, we might expect to see a virtual model. For example, the rescue does some great modeling of the cave system that the Thai kids are caught in. Or, or, or given the importance of the outcome and what happens, you may be a countdown clock. You do include some shots, I think, that were recorded later, but in general, you rely on the film and the photography from that day, and I think even more importantly in some ways, the testimony of your participants. Can you talk about that decision not you know, make a model, but you really focus, I think, on what people experienced that day?
1: It was kind of two-fold answer. The way we put together the scene of the accident was based on first of all the accident report which outlined exactly what was supposed to happen second by second from everybody's perspective, the safety divers, Stephen and Alessia, and also other people on surface, and then what exactly did happen second by second from everybody's perspective. I only wanted to speak to people who were there and I only wanted them to speak to what they saw and what they experienced. It was just really important to me. And we were blessed that we had a really accurate account of every moment for every person. And we wanted to keep it as straightforward and as simple to those facts as possible. But also we played around with, you know, we spoke about putting a CG model together and we spoke about stock on the screen. And, you know, we would have absolutely used them If we had to, but we felt when we were putting together that using people's perspective, using people's like POV from the different safety divers and Alessia's POV and seeing because we had the spine of the archive from the day that to be in the moment with the divers felt more important. And we felt that the audience was with us. And we felt that the audience would grasp it. The geography, even though it's quite complicated, felt like people did a really good job of kind of like visualizing it. So I was glad that we didn't have to use those tools in the end and we could do it in a way which felt more in tune with the film and how the film had been put together up until that point.
0: I think it's the right choice. I'm not surprised you thought about the other mechanisms, but it really does work here. One of the last bits is with Peter, Stephen's father, and he's obviously still grieves his son, though he, interestingly, suggests is kind of selfish, but he says that he is consoled by the way that Stephen lived by his courage. And it is interesting to see the wake of Stephen's death, Alessia, who's, by the way, only 31, right? It's still out there, breaking records, doing amazing things. What do you take away from the lives of Alessia and Stephen?
1: Just going back to what you said there about Peter, Peter was obviously very close with his son, but he was also really aware of the life that Stephen was living. You know, in a really simple way, Peter said, you know, that Stephen lived more than some people who live to be more than twice his age. And his take on grief, you know, he was a consultant in the pediatric emergency room in Temple Street in Dublin. And in a way, he has been around death a lot in his life and maybe has days where he can look at things in a more academic way. But really, when he says, you know, in a purely selfish way, I miss him. And he's just, bless him, like he's just even almost barely allowing himself to feel the grief, almost apologetically, in a way, because he doesn't want to make it about himself. But he's really proud of his son. And I think that's the way that I felt then able to approach Stephen's story, not as a sad story, but as a story of somebody who lived an incredibly fulfilling life and did live a much greater life than, you know, some people who live till they're 80. It was really Peter's take on it that allowed me to approach it in a more joyful way rather than with complete sorrow. And I suppose as well, Alessia has taken that on also. And that's the way Stephen kind of lived as well. He didn't hide away and hope that he'd live till 100 safely. He went out there. He was aware of the risks that he was taking throughout his life. And Alessia has like embraced that spirit as well that both Peter Keenan and Stephen Keenan had. But that's not to say that it's an awful heavy weight that she does have to carry for the rest of her life. So it's really twofold, you know, with everybody. The grief is more than twofold. You know, there is the element of, you know, celebrating a person that he was, but also grieving that person as well. But one of the things Peter said recently, which I thought was a really grounded kind of way to look at Stephen and, you know, this kind of Stephen story that's starting to get out there, which Peter said, He didn't die a hero. It's not this hero's story. It's a story of someone who just did the right thing. They died doing the right thing. A lot of people die doing the wrong thing. And he died doing the right thing. And he's proud of his son for doing the right thing. Thank
0: you for being here today, Laura. And thank you for this film. As I said, it's visually incredibly compelling and it's immersive. Literally, I felt immersed in the film and in this world. But it's also, I think, a subtle meditation on love and ambition and even grief. So congratulations on the film and thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. I've really enjoyed talking to you.
0: Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you don't think gets the attention that it deserves?
1: I do have a hidden gem, and I only saw it a few months ago on the recommendation of a friend, and it's called Wildcat, and it's on Amazon Prime. It made me cry like a baby, like I was just floored i didn't know what to expect i don't think i knew anything about it going in and i was just floored it's an incredible story of an ex-soldier who came home from i think afghanistan he had ptsd and he goes and volunteers at a wildcat sanctuary it's an incredible journey if you like nature you like animals and you like human beings it's a great documentary